Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. It's a Tuesday episode. So here with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Good morning, Bradley. And then also with us is Corey Epstein. And then today's agenda is, um, I had a column last week in the Daily News about Eric Adams. So Hugo and Corey and I are going to talk through that. Then uh, a listener wrote in with a, a traffic question, and Corey is actually a traffic and transportation expert, so he's going to answer that question. Um, then Bob we're and also I, going to talk about congestion pricing with Corey, right? And we'll talk about congestion right. pricing because you don't want you don't want me to ask you about that, but you, I don't. You I just never found Corey it that interesting. It. But I think Corey at least will have. Well, here the reason I even want you to ask me about it is I don't think I have anything to say. It's right. particularly interesting, but Corey actually is an expert. In it's this true. Stuff. Um, and then Bob's going to come on, and we're going to talk about. Uh, some ideas that if we were Biden, we would use, uh, and then I'll end with a recommendation. And then next week, I know everyone's been waiting with bated breath for this. Uh, I will talk through my best books of 2023. And obviously, in part because you own a bookstore here, PT Knit, where we are, part and, and this is a good, a good gift giving opportunity to come right. to PT and buy yeah. The books. Yeah, yeah, come buy no? books. Right, sure, <laughs> buy books. Okay. Hi, Corey. Just want to say good morning. Right. Hi. All right. So let's talk about the Adams column. Sure. Um, uh, okay, so the, just the column is how um, Eric Adams can bounce back. Yes, which, I mean I like your optimism there. Are you? We're going to talk about the specifics, but just as a as a frame, are you optimistic that Eric Adams can bounce back? I think someone in his position could bounce back. I'm not optimistic that he will. Be. Okay, well let's talk about the specifics. What's the number one thing that he needs to do, like starting today? I mean, he's got to clean up the fucking city, right? Like, I just walked over here, and I can't remember the city being dirtier than it was just this morning. Like, okay. To the point where I'm like, why do I live here? Like, which I very rarely feel that way. Um, and here's the good news for him. Like, he's getting hit on things like public corruption and public policy. And look, if he didn't, we've discussed this before, if he did enough that he gets indicted, so be it. Um, but the good news for him is... The voters just want a clean, safe, well-run city. That's what people want, especially in the re-election of a mayor, which really is a referendum on performance, not on ideology. So um, the good news is he, he can, no matter what his problems are with the U.S. attorney or anyone else, he can climb out of this mess by fo focusing on quality of life. Um, but it's a bunch of things. The, the, the first is crime. Um, he, For the first time in a very long time, New York City is facing some real budget deficit issues. De Blasio never really had to deal with it because he had a combination of a large rainy day fund left over from Bloomberg plus uh, a strong economy and then COVID. And there were trillions of dollars total uh, passed by Congress and tremendous amount of that was sent to city and state governments. And as a result, New York City, like every city and state, has been dining off of the federal government, which is also why we have so much inflation um, for the last couple of years. And finally, the federal money is out. Economy is mixed. Uh, Bloomberg's rainy day fund, the Bellagio spent it a long, long time ago. <laughs> Gone. And so, and because of the migrant crisis, which is not Adam's fault, but we are, we were already, it would have had a multi-billion dollar budget deficit, and this makes it that much worse. So Adams is threatening to have less cops. He's already canceled a couple of police academy classes. I, it's a little unclear to me if he plans to do that or if that's a scare tactic. But e either way, it's a terrible idea, right? Because the way you enter a doom loop is the city is doing badly. Um, it doesn't feel good. People decide that the value proposition of living here is no longer there, right? Because it, at its best of times, New York City is an expensive, 
difficult place to live, mm -hmm. right? But when the city is vibrant and exciting and clean and safe and whatever else, it's easy to conclude it's worth it. Right. But when the city feels dangerous and dirty and gross and taxes are higher than ever and they're going to probably go up again, then a lot of people say, screw this, I'll move somewhere else. And, and the, the risk is 50,000 people pay 50% of the taxes and they're all highly mobile. So the risk of the, the doom loop is you you are in a bad situation from a budget standpoint, so you make cuts to quality of life and police. That leads to even more crime and, and worse quality of life. That leads to even more high resident, high wealth residents to move out. Poor people have to stay here because they don't have anywhere they can go. Um, and you never catch up and recover, and that's effectively what happened to Detroit, Baltimore, Newark, you know, Cleveland, bunch of cities. So what's the day one, Adams comes into the office this week and was like, okay, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna get started here on getting so, these things under yeah. control. What's the first thing he's gotta I'll, do? I'll play his comms director and spell out the whole week for him. Excellent. So today, he is dealing with the illegal weed shop. Shop, surprise, surprise. Okay, right. Um, and the cops are padlocking every single one of them. Where did he get a brilliant idea like that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and the reason this is important is it, the overall feeling of lawlessness and dangerousness in the city is greatly exacerbated by the fact that people are selling illegal drugs right underneath the cops' noses with no one doing anything about it. It does. It's not like literally the other day I saw like six cop cars parked outside of a legal weed shop. I'm like, oh, they're finally doing something. Oh, they were just fucking parked there. <laughs> um, and so like, you know, it, it, why would anyone else effectively bother to throw trash in the trash can or obey other basic laws if the cops don't even do their basic job and the mayor doesn't do his basic job? So that's what I do on day one. Okay. Day two, I would announce legislation to repeal local law 11. That's the scaffolding law that we've talked about mm -hmm. quite a bit. Um, it leads to, we just have, uh, there's a law in the books called Local Law 11 that says that for buildings that are, I don't know, four or five stories high or more, um, there has to be a inspection of them to make sure that the facade is safe. Sort of theoretically makes sense, but the problem is scaffolding goes up and as all New Yorkers know, it never comes down. And so the entire city is covered in scaffolding. What does that lead to? It leads to more assault, more rape, more crime, more places for junkies to shoot up. Um, it just contributes to that overall quality of life decline. And unlike a lot of other issues, there's not even a powerful political constituency protecting Local Law 11. Um, it's just political inertia. Now, is it possible that Adams has friends and donors who are in the scaffolding companies? Sure, I, if I had to bet, he probably does. And does Adams seem more intent on helping out his friends through the mayoralty than helping the people of the city of New York? So far, yes. Um, but to the extent that he wants to try to save his career and his legacy and everything else, this is the time to sort of put your, not keep putting your friends ahead of, ahead of the public good. And you say to the city council, you're going to pass this law and I will bribe and coerce each one of you into doing, getting your vote. Uh, so that's day two. That's day two. Okay. Um, day three, uh, would be shoplifting. Um, and I do a few things. One is if I were him. I'd call the CEO of CVS, I'd call the CEO of Target, I'd call the CEO of Walgreens and every other major retailer in the city and say, what do you need from us to solve this problem and to want to be here and to stay here? One thing I do notice is that yeah. the, the the Wegmans, they do have cops and they're pretty regular. I don't know if that's like a, just a but kind those, of an anecdotal thing. No, you don't think those are off-duty cops that they're paying for? I can't, you can't be in uniform in a uh, off-duty, can you? And be- I'm not sure. Anyway, it's just interesting. There's cops in there a lot. Yeah, I don't know what that that's means. Good. Maybe or, they're or, getting food. I don't know. But or or maybe there is a Wegmans is you know 
been able to convince the precinct that, hey, you know, if 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 we are not protected and we start having massive shoplifting, this is going to fail immediately. Right. And maybe right. the, that maybe that particular precinct gives a shit. I cut you off. So you you call the you call the CEOs. I call the CEOs, what and then mean? I would um, take resources uh, that I've got, law enforcement resources, and I'd put them towards this, and I would pressure the district attorneys heavily to actually really enforce and prosecute shoplifting. And I would call on Tish James, Attorney General, to do something about it. I would call on Governor Hochul to do something about it. Um, I would even suggest potentially deployment of the National Guard um, if needed uh, to help CVS. deal with this at CVS. Yep. Okay. It, well, I mean, they're just fucking sitting around all day doing nothing. Like, why can't we have them at least deal with shoplifting? Day three? Day that, four. That was day three. day three, right. Okay. Day four, um, I would... Be, I would string out some money from the federal government for the migrant crisis to reduce the budget cuts. So I would have Joe Manchin come tour migrant, spend the day with him touring migrant facilities around New York. Do you think Joe would do it? Fuck yeah. yeah he would. For press. Yeah. Uh, all he wants is to get attention for a potential presidential bid. Lay out the red carpet for he, Joe. That he won't actually do. Okay. Um, and then I would put a public schedule showing that... Uh, I was having lunch with RFK Jr. Uh, the next week and dinner with Nikki, your your friend Nikki Haley. So, um, so what would what would so the White House learns that Mayor Adams is having dinner with Nikki Haley and they think here's what they think: fuck that guy. They they, they think fuck that guy. Right. They also think we can't lose New York. Doesn't matter, right? He can do right. whatever he wants. But here's the third thing, and this is what their dad people are tell them. You suffer like a ten percent drop in African American turnout, and that could be the difference in in Wisconsin because of Milwaukee, in Pennsylvania because of Philly, in Michigan because of Detroit. So you could lose the election over that. Mm -hmm. I mean, partly that's why Hillary lost, right? She made this very naive assumption that because African-American voters loved her husband and because she worked for Obama that they would turn out in the same numbers for her. And they didn't. And they just, it's not that they didn't vote for her, you know, pretty overwhelmingly. Of course they did. Um, but they just weren't excited about her, just like most voters weren't excited about her. Um, and that was probably the margin of, of error. So, so that's um, the message. So that I think Adams the, the point saying. for Adams is like, yeah, look, I, I, I'm not going to put New York in play for the Republican, but um, if I'm out there talking about how you, Joe Biden, have done nothing for African Americans for the last four years, and that deters the vote at all, that's critical. Or guess what? Somewhere in that multi-trillion-dollar federal budget. Find $5 billion for New York City for, for the migrants. This was probably the, the piece of your op-ed that I heard the most pushback on. A lot of people liked your points. This, pe this some people I heard on another podcast, they thought this point was a little ridiculous. Why? You think it's worth... Do, I'm, just, I'm just sharing. Adam do you think is it's, already accused... Oh, go ahead, sorry. Do you think it's worth alienating more Dems in New York by highlighting someone towards the fringe like RFK or a Republi right yes, Republican because, like Nikki Haley? Yes, because so number one... Um, Adams has already accused Biden of targeting him, that the whole federal investigation into him is because Biden's mad that Adams criticized him in the migrants. So uh, th this whole thing became facilitated by Adam, Adams' original craziness, right? But once he already cast that stone, you might as well run with it. And honestly, Chuck Schumer, Hakeem Jeffries, what the fuck are they doing about the migrant crisis? Nothing. What are they doing any of these problems we're talking about? Nothing, right? So what, you're going to alienate people who already, like, and this is what I don't get about politics. People are so afraid, I mm -hmm. guess especially because it's the people who make their money in and around politics and they're so dependent on it. But, like, who gives a shit if Chuck Schumer is mad at you? If he's, It's one thing if he's delivering for you and you don't want to make him mad because you don't want to lose that, that. That's a reasonable position. But if it's that, um, 
you know, he, he's already just making excuses or his biggest, his, his big thing is always, I'm working behind the scenes, which just means nothing. Um, <laughs> and by the way, Hakeem, nice guy, smart guy, but not fucking delivering either. And I guess in his defense, he's not the, he's not the speaker, he's mm-hmm. the minority leader. But um, neither of them are coming through. So who cares if they're mad? So what? So you can't tell people you're friends with them? Guess what? You're not really friends with them anyway. So I want to go back to this in a second, but let's do day five for a second just to complete the the uh the circle what happens on day five reinstate the police academy classes okay uh and make it clear that we are not going to let uh crime increase and that we are going to uh invest in law enforcement and that we are going to have more law and order in the city and you think with all these things this kind of flips the narrative because the narrative right now is adams is in trouble no one's really even thinking about like can he be a good mayor it's like the the story starting to be can he survive yeah i mean look so this could help flip the narrative. The problem is Adams has made a lot of big promises already, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll get them certainly with, with Corey in a minute on traffic. He just doesn't execute or anything. And, and the reason why I didn't support Adams for mayor was what I learned from Mike Bloomberg is you know, Mike's a smart guy, integrity, all that stuff, but that's not what made him a successful mayor. What made him a successful mayor is he said, I am going to hire the most talented people I can get, and I don't care about politics. I just care about talent. And I'm going to make all of them hire the most talented people that they could get. And then I'm going to let them govern and do their jobs in an innovative and apolitical way, right? And Adams has done the literal opposite, which is I'm going to hire cronies, donors, and former elected officials. And then I'm going to let them hire whoever they want. And every decision we make is based on politics first and substance second. So what does that lead to? It leads to a city that is totally out of control, that is totally a mess. The public, his polling is terrible because the public is smart and they see this. And so, yes, you you can enact my comms plan. And I do think that at the very least. Well, it's definitely more than a comms plan. It would get attention on my policy plan, whatever it is. But I worry that he doesn't even have the team to execute on it, right? Um, Because he's so, I guess one of the qualities he had that people like to laud him for, which I understand is his loyalty, that if you were with him on day one, you know, you're going to be in a top job today. And that's nice in a way. But you know, that, that that might be good for Eric Adams or for whoever was there on day one. It's not good for the 8.4 million people you're supposed to represent. Um, and, and in the same way that, like, for example, if you take, like, the Amazon example we talk about a lot, where Mike Gennaris put one job, his own, ahead of 40,000 jobs that could have come to New York City, Eric Adams putting his job and sort of goodies for his cronies um, ahead of eight and a half million people, whatever it is. And then the last point of this, and then we'll shift over to the traffic. I have one thing. more question on on, right. on on Adams, but go ahead. All right, one, 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 yeah. one more point, which is my guess is Team Adams is saying, well, we've given out great labor contracts to UFT, I think to DC 37, others. So we're going to have all the institutional support. People, We're not going to lose to a Republican in 25. Most people are chicken shit and they're not going to challenge an incumbent. Democratic mayor, and so as long as we kind of have all the institutional stuff locked up and we raise a lot of money, um, we'll kind of get through it, which is what de Blasio did, right? Mm -hmm. That very well may be true. Um, However, you know, as I said in the piece, like, congrats, you're Bill de Blasio, great fucking job. Like, (laughs) that's really the best you're hoping for? Like, he he can do better than that. So uh, there were some just rumors flying around about Andrew Cuomo being interested in running for mayor. Two quick questions, and then we'll get to Corey. is Adams worried about that? Should he be worried about that? I don't know if he is worried about it, but yeah, he should be worried about it because at the end of the day, people like Andrew Cuomo or Rudy Giuliani win elections when the public is really frustrated and they say, Donald Trump, they say, I am really unhappy with the way things are and I'm willing to hold my nose and vote for this person who I don't like 
um, because at the end of the day, I want to be safe. I want my kids to be safe. I want my block to be clean. Um, and people are willing to put their own self-interest uh, ahead of how they feel about the individual. And so Adams is barreling towards that territory by doing such a poor job on quality of life. Corey on transportation. You want to yeah, leave so us I'll, off? Yeah, so Greg Allen, who's a listener of ours, um, sent in an email. He said we could use his name on the air. He said, I recall you asking for policy concerns you would consider discussing. How would you recommend getting change done in New York City? I am the parent of a seven and a three-year-old, both of whom we walk back and forth to PS11, public elementary school in Clinton Hill. In my Brooklyn neighborhood, a tragedy last week has prompted me to write in. It was a, a traffic tragedy. Um, and his questions were, what is the commitment to Vision Zero and who is accountable? And second, um, how can citizens push for creative solutions to make neighbors less dominated by traffic? Um, and then the, the tragedy specifically was the death of 70-year-old Kamara Hughes as he was crossing the street and killed by the driver of an NYPD uh, tow truck. And it ended with two final questions. One, it seems like any progress is only possible through tragedy. So my question is kind of the same. What works to accountability, to establish accountability for big commitments like Vision Zero? And second, these events have us thinking, would our family be safer living elsewhere? Which gets back to what we were just talking about. So, Corey, quickly just for the listeners, t tell them why you're the expert on these issues. Great. Thanks for having me. So uh, I'll just come out and say it. I'm a big transit nerd. And I've been a big transportation we, we nerd you for it, my, yeah. my whole my whole life. Um, so I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago, uh, after working on the city council, I had the opportunity to sort of live into that. I worked for City Bike, which was then owned by Motivate, then Lyft bought us. So I worked at Lyft for a bit. After that, I worked at Transportation Alternatives, which is the longest, you know, biggest safe streets, public transit, bike advocacy organization in New York City. Did that for a few years, and now I'm here. So I was doing transportation sort of 24-7 as my full-time job for a while, sort of got to like live into what I really liked learning about, studying when I'm traveling. I'm like the first person to ride some like obscure subway line in a new city or take a train to the airport instead of a cab. Um, so I got to do that for a few years. Now I'm here at Tusk, um, but I'm still in the transportation world. I try to keep one foot in it, have lots of friends there. Are you on like Reddit boards and things like that? Oh, so many Reddit boards. <laughs> um, so maybe I'll just set the stage really quickly for listeners who might not be from New York, sort of what Vision Zero is. Or from Sweden. Or from Sweden. Yeah, it started in, it started in Scandinavia. Everything good Your starts people. there. Yeah, good stuff. Go. Everything good. Um, and it's an idea that traffic violence, traffic deaths are sort of just like any other public health epidemic and that mm -hmm. they can be reduced to zero that's the whole idea and when and it's here in new york here in the states it is associated with de blasio and sort of thinking to adams there are some policy things you associate with de blasio like pre-k pre-k right. for all vision zero like you can name those really what, quickly one quick thing in defense yeah. of joe biden so biden came here like a decade ago i don't know if corey remembers what i'm about to say or not and to, did a press conference with by with de blasio on vision zero and instead kept calling it zero vision um oh god and but you know meanwhile he was only like 70 at the time so i i think this is just the malapropsis who he is it's, it's not necessarily it, that's related definitely to his age. true well it's getting worse so de blasio during his campaign started talking about vision zero and it, he was really pushed by this um, by the parents, by the mothers of kids who were killed in traffic crashes. They were talking with him, protesting, behind the scenes, letter writing. So when he became mayor, he actually said, I'm going to do 
something called Vision Zero. I'm going to invest in traffic safety. And sort of the the spotlight or the main thing he focused on, their marquee plan was Queens Boulevard. If you're a New Yorker for many, many years, decades, it was called the Boulevard of Death. Um, I did some research. It said 186 people were killed uh, on Queens Boulevard between 1990 and about 2013. 138 of them were pedestrians. Um, de Blasio invested millions of dollars over many years to make Vision Zero, to make Queens Boulevard safer. And we actually got to zero deaths on Queens Boulevard, you know, by shrinking how f the, the crosswalks, adding bike lanes, dropping the speed limit. Like that was sort of the, 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 the blueprint to say, hey, if you invest money, if you're serious and you're focused on something and you don't let politics play a role, um, stuff can actually get done and they actually got to zero traffic deaths on this really bull this really really dangerous boulevard yeah so um greg wrote in after this really horrific crash in fort green that killed a seven-year-old you know just this past week a three-year-old was killed in queens so things are things are not good right now and uh vision zero was working under de blasio we actually 2018 was the safest year but then for a variety of reasons, including the pandemic, including maybe the former mayor trying to run for president um, and potentially our new mayor, the numbers I have gotten worse. I think if he worse. had just like gotten those traffic numbers down like 3% more, he definitely would have won the presidential election. <laughs> so um, now I just, so I just looked at the Transportation Alternatives website. This year there's been 20, 226 people killed in traffic crashes, which is a 26% increase over the safest year. Um, but we do see places like Jersey City and Hoboken, they recently have had zero traffic deaths. So even close by, it's possible, and we're just going in the wrong direction. So why, why are we going in the wrong direction? So there's a few reasons. One, let me just jump to what uh, Adams promised during his campaign, because I think this connects us to our past conversation, the past topic. Because I looked back at his campaign plans, and the campaign, campaign plans there are really good, but when you look back at them now and sort of see where we're at uh, with the mayor finishing up his second year, um, it's almost comical how far we are from actually achieving them. So look, 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 he says, our new protected bike lanes will include bicycle superhighways using unused road space under elevated highways and railways, protecting bikes and pedestrians, safe routes to park in neighborhoods far from large open spaces. And he also mentions bike lanes over the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. This is this is this was from his campaign plan in 2021. Got Have it. you heard anything about a bike lane over the Verrazano Bridge? I you know it would be nice, and I've I think I suggested this in the op-ed was a uh, readopting the Bloomberg campaign promises. Uh, report, which every year we would put out a report um, saying, here's everything that was promised in the most recent campaign. Here's where everything, single one of these things stands, whether they were done or not done, because the point was to show real accountability and transparency. So, no, we haven't, but perhaps he could start to allay some of that. Maybe by the actually, New York Times should just do that. I think it would only have to fit into the agenda that helps them sell the most subscriptions to their readers. And if you, and actually I Googled like Eric Adams' 2021 campaign plan and they deleted it off his campaign website. So you can only find it on archived news sites. Jesus. So I had to go on Gotham Gazette, which saved all of them, 
but the Adams campaign has deleted all of them. So I looked at the data. So they're not going to do the campaign promise. <laughs> well, I, well, I guess not. It's a good indication. So la this year, this year we're almost at the end of the year. There's been 27 miles of bike lanes installed. He promised 300 across four years. So that means he's only at nine percent of what he promised. Um, in fairness to the mayor, who yeah. I've been bashing for 24 minutes and 32 seconds now, uh, bike lanes are fucking hard. It is like one of those things that. Seems very simple from a mm -hmm. like it doesn't you're just putting some green paint down on the street mm -hmm. and yet politically people really do. Go so nuts. my so my question is so again this and this connects to what Gregory was emailing. He said you know how can we make things safer? We know there's data from here in every city across the country. If you add a bike lane, it makes things safer for bikers, pedestrians, and people in cars. We just so saw. Can we I ask just you a question. I don't as a pedestrian. I don't feel. I feel like bikers make my life more dangerous, not safer. The the whole point is when you have a bike lane, the whole idea is that it makes things more organized. It makes it it's sort of when sets people the, go down the bike lane the way they're supposed to go. Correct. But the, correct. these days, it seems like it's just as frequently to go in the opposite. So can I? Well, I just wanted to say you said you said you said bike lanes are so hard. We just saw in L.A. this freeway was about to collapse and they fixed it in 10 days. How can a country I mean, fix a freeway? Bikeways are structured, are so politically so politically hard. hard. I, I didn't mean substantively so hard. But do you think, don't you think that's a little bit illogical or don't you think it's an interesting thought idea that something as complicated and as structurally gigantic well, as but a in highway. But in a weird way, the stakes there are very high, right? So you and I were in LA when the, mm -hmm. the 10 had a fire or whatever it was, and it was such an enormous deal that fixing it overrode all local mm -hmm. concerns, right? But when something has low stakes as a bike lane, mm -hmm. then everyone, like that famous uh, Kissinger quote, the politics of academia are so vicious because the stakes are so low. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of like that. Well, maybe a bike lane, like think you can be thinking about like any single bike lane might seem like super low stakes, but what, what we try to, th well, in my past life when we were working at organizations like TA, what we thought about was look, 226 people have been killed every week. There's a new kid who's been killed. Like this is this is like high stakes for someone like Gregory who wants to walk his kids to school and doesn't want to get run over by a car and is saying like, are we safe for other places? So for families and for a lot of people who've been impacted directly, it is high stakes. Yeah. Can I can I ask yeah. a quick question? How much of it the the problem do you think is related? I'm not talking about bike lanes now, mm -hmm. but about about the rise in traffic deaths. Um, is related to the uh, food delivery systems mm -hmm. and the motorized bikes that are everywhere. Yeah. I think it's so. I think it's two things. I would say in the past, not so much. Currently, uh, we got to see because now you're seeing it's not e-bikes, it's mopeds, and we know um, what's that the mopeds, difference in terms of safety. Moped is like um, mopeds can go much faster, much more quickly, and they're heavier. So if you get hit by a bike, whether it's an e it's it's um, the the physics of it. That's why you hear very 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 rarely of someone being killed by being hit by a bike. It's like one person a year, if that. And, and that's being why killed if, by yeah, someone maybe, bike, if right. someone gets if a pedestrian right. is struck by a bicyclist, yeah. um, because they might so slow. get a bruise, you might get a bruise, you might fall over, but it's very rarely a death. Whereas if you get hit by a car, especially an SUV high chance you might be killed or really so, injured. So the mopeds can go faster. Yeah. Mopeds so go faster. Yeah. Um, and mopeds are heavier than a, than an e-bike. Right. And the problem is that a lot of food delivery people were using e-bikes with the, the, the batteries, but then you have this lithium ion battery problem. Right. So a lot of people realized, okay, I'm 
Maybe my building banned it. Maybe I read all the stories about places going up in flames. I don't want my apartment to burn down. So I'm going to switch to a gas-powered moped. So it actually doesn't serve us from a street safety point of view or an environmental point of view. Right. And this is a whole thing about the city. The city could have figured out, hey, we're going to have, and they've talked about maybe like battery charging stations. Schumer, I remember Would you say we about, have a particularly aggressive and innovative DOT commissioner right now? No, no. You look at the look at the look at the the numbers. You know, the city has to install. But he'd he'd been a transportation policy expert for decades before this, right? But if you, he I'm was kidding. Ele- the fucking elected official was a city councilman. <laughs> this is what we get. I mean, you have you have project after project being killed. Whether it's McGinnis, whether it's Fordham Road, so um, that's not what you want to see, and that's not going to make the numbers. I, I will better. say, I believe that if you polled. There would be among non-biker residents of New York City mm-hmm. frustration with the bikers, though. Um, in that, he, as someone who doesn't bike, I would say that one, it doesn't seem like it's clear that bikers ever have to stop for traffic lights or stop signs or anything else. So you're always a little worried about getting hit by one. Two, um, people driving bikes, and these are usually more delivery guys, but on mm-hmm. the streets. Three, going down the bike lanes in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. So like. You know, if I were debating what you're saying, I'd say, yeah, in theory, the bike lanes are safer, but they're only safer if they are, uh, you know, if, if the rules are obeyed, mm-hmm. and they're not. In which case, yeah, mopeds you know, are not. Mopeds are not. That's the. That's another thing. Mopeds are not allowed in bike lanes, and they're often not registered. They don't have licensed. No, no. I mean, right. like, like none of this is enforced, and that's going this. That this is foreshadowing our congestion pricing conversation. But let's right. go. Let's let's get to congestion pricing. But first, let's answer some of Gregory's questions. Yes. So, um, he asked, "What's the commission? The commitment to Vision Zero? Who's accountable?" It's very simple. The mayor is accountable. We have a strong mayor system. We can see that projects are being killed. A lot of times, we are reading news articles saying they're being killed by people in city hall. Bradley, do you think? We would be better off with a city manager yes, to do to do to get safer streets I, I, and reduce I, all the politics look, out of these I, projects. I think, generally speaking, the person who wins the mayoralty is a political job. And taking Mike Bloomberg out of the mix, the person who wins that job has always been a politician, one way or another. And I think, realistically, that's what's going to be going forward because those are the people who are good at running for office and, and receiving votes. But those are not people who really understand how to run anything. The Adams was borough president. The Blasio was public advocate. The U.S. Attorney's Office at Rudy Rand was, what, a couple hundred people. Koch was a congressman. So um, I think that maybe we should just accept that we're always going to have a political mayor, and yet we can't have a city run by political hacks and therefore separate out the two jobs, have the city manager in charge of things like traffic enforcement, um, and let the mayor, you know, cut ribbons and and go to Washington for meetings and stuff. Mm-hmm. He at Greg asked, "How can citizens push for creative solutions to make neighborhoods neighborhoods less dominated by traffic?" Something that's interesting is actually last week Adams did make a pretty good uh, traffic announcement. He said they're going to daylight a thousand intersections a year. So this means you basically mean? this means you basically eliminate one parking spot closest to the intersection. So cars, when they're turning. They have better visibility of people crossing the street because you just had the seven-year-old who was killed while he was crossing the street by a large tow truck. So he's do- he said he's doing a thousand a year, um, and this was actually something that a lot of organizations had been pushing for. And there was actually a campaign to get different community boards across the city to pass resolutions in support of that. And a bunch of community boards started pushing these resolutions, 
And the mayor said, okay, I'm going to do it before all of them chimed in. Um, so to answer this question, I would say, you know, joining an organization, starting to talk to your community board, showing that your neighborhood, uh, your, your block association wants something um, is going to help put it on the map. Um, doing something just by yourself and, and, you know, maybe writing into us won't move it. But if you can find other people in your neighborhood that might, you know, show a city council member that, hey, there's a there's a critical mass of people who want you to do something, showing the community board, showing the mayor, like that, this sort of critical mass can move the needle. It's only because, you know, this group of pa parents who lost their kids to crashes got vision zero on de Blasio's radar that we even had this in the first place. So you have to, there is some sort of mass movement effect here. Yeah. And he said, these events have us thinking, would our family be safer living elsewhere? Do, do you guys, what, how, where do you guys think New York City falls with traffic violence compared to other it's cities? It's gotta still be much better. Right, because it is much better. Yeah, I mean, if, not, if nothing else, and this maybe this is the argument against congestion pricing. You know, to your point before about the the bikes versus the mopeds. You know, vehicles are going so much more slowly uh, that, by definition, even when something does go wrong, uh, the impact is far less. Because I this is this is right, and this is going to be our pivot to congestion pricing. For every ten miles per hour of increased speed, the risk of dying in a crash doubles. So, in, in practical terms. If driving speed goes from 60 miles per hour to 80, um, it increases the risk of fatal crash by four so, times. So, so therefore, congestion pricing is bad. So, so therefore, <laughs> congestion pricing, which is going to increase the speeds of cars in the central business district, right. could be bad for traffic safety if the city does not invest in Vision Zero and potentially make crosswalks shorter or focus on the central business district and say, hey, we're going to add some concrete pavers or more protected bike lanes to make sure that when cars are moving more faster here that mm -hmm. vulnerable people are protected but that gets us to the question is is this current mayor going well, to do that even right now the, of the money that's supposed to come in from congestion pricing mm -hmm. is any of it allocated to vision zero right now no no, no it's all for the mta all, all for the, the MTA. mta yeah yeah but this the whole point is and this was the new york times article this morning they talked about london cope uh stockholm and singapore uh and if you've been to london recently um, and they do have congestion pricing. Um, they also have insane amounts of bus lanes, insane amounts of protected bike lanes. And the, the streets there are pretty narrow. Yeah. And I think what happened in London was that when they were doing congestion pricing, either, I, I, I don't know if they specifically allocated or the government decided to allocate some money to say, hey, it, it's going to, there's going to be fewer people driving in here. Let's make it easier to ride a bike, easier right. to take a bus, easier to cross the street. And unfortunately, we don't have, I do not think we have that hand in hand happening here. So in the, the article said, and, and I've had the same experience in talking to London taxi drivers and Uber drivers, mm -hmm. that congestion pricing did not actually reduce congestion in mm -hmm. central London. But do you think it generated revenue that then, do you know for a fact, led to a lot more traffic safety? I don't, I don't really answer about traffic safety in London, but I do know if you go to London, it's still bustling, vibrant, tons of stuff going on. So while there might be congestion still, while there might be fewer drivers, like the city is flourishing and thriving. So well, but if, if, if the definition of flourishing yeah. and thriving is bustling, then isn't this just another secret tax? But 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 you have to think about what the results would be if there was no congestion pricing and the whole city came to a stop because there was so many more cars there. But do we do we? I mean, right. Yeah. But the the argument of like, oh, well, it'd be much worse without. It. It's sort of like every time Democrats lose an election, AOC says, 
Oh, that's because you weren't progressive enough, right? She gets like, they, you know, we lost because like bail reform, whatever. And they're like, no, if, if you'd only said that we would abolish the police completely, then a lot of progressives would have turned out to vote and you would on the election. So being like, oh, it would be so much worse. It's kind of a, I mean, maybe it's true, but it's kind of a bullshit argument, I think. Yes, you go. No, I'm just, I'm, 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 I have so many thoughts, yeah, he, but, I, you go, but I, I'm, I'm, you I'm, like this issue. Jump in, man. I do love this issue, and I think we're going to have to have Corey back on to really talk about it more fully because we have Bob waiting for us okay. on, on the thing. So yeah. but maybe I, but, we'll but here's, here's the question. Another time. All right, but we, Corey, we o- overall, two quick questions yeah. for you. One, would you enact congestion pricing if given the power to do so? Oh, I, I would do it, and I would make sure there was money allocated to fix and improve the streetscape. So when congestion pricing happens, the streets are ready for potentially faster okay. speeds and more people right. riding so buses. So now, let's assume it happens, but you are not king of the world, and therefore it will be implemented according to the uh, current political dynamic we have. In five years, do we is congestion pricing viewed as a win and a success? Yes, I think every single city that it's gone to um, it quickly becomes the new norm, and it might force the administration, whether it's in the state or the city, to react and tweak it a little bit. But I think people, it's going to quickly yeah. become. I mean, the I new think norm. what Singapore is doing, where it's totally dynamic pricing that changes based on the street, the hour, the day, the day, the week, the time of the year, all of that is a much better way to do it overall. But I get that, like you know, and yeah. crawl before you walk or whatever. It and is. Singapore <laughs> also has electronic tags, you know, inside each car as opposed to flashing on the license plates, which we know here is a big problem with people using counterfeit, fake, or folded over plates. So we can talk about that on Plus, a second, right, Corey, a second day. We had a whole transit agenda. All Corey, right. thank you. Thank you. So um, a week or two ago, we talked about the notion of, instead of Biden and the Democrats trying to sort of discredit and impeach Trump based on his morality, the argument here is that the voters are well aware of his complete lack of morality. And it's not that they don't know how bad he is, and that's why they're not supporting him. It's that they think that despite how bad he is, um, their lives were still better under him as president and would be better again, and they're willing to make that trade-off. So as reports about what Trump plans to do in a second term, should he win, have been coming out, um, Bob and I, or really Bob, uh, embarked on an exercise to look at, okay, if we take what Team Trump is saying they're going to do— and then we play it out, what are the tangible practical impacts of that? And one of the reasons we want to do this is to me, these are the kind of arguments that if you're team Biden, you wanna make, right? Which is right now, when you're just talking about sort of immorality or how great Bidenomics is, it's too intangible to matter any voters, right? But I think these things Bob and I are about to walk through are real tangible ways that your life would get worse if these things were to actually happen. Uh, And there's no reason not to believe that Trump wouldn't try to follow through on these things. Um, So therefore, uh, we thought they'd be interesting to talk about. So, Bob, thanks for joining. Glad glad to be here. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah, you're a little soft. Very few people have ever said that I speak too softly. That's true. I've not ever heard that about you before. Um, All right. So you you came up with five different ideas uh, that in just taking Trump at his word, which I know is this crazy thing to say, his words came out of my mouth. are likely policy outcomes. So, all right, take me through, what's the first one? Well, let me let me start out by giving you just one piece of overview and a piece sure. of fact evidence to say that this is not, while it's while some of this may sound crazy, it's not actually outside the realm of possibility. So keep in mind that in the first Trump term, he decided to reorganize the Department of Interior and move the Department of Interior to rural Colorado. I don't know if everyone remembers this, 
But the result of that, as part of the reorganization of federal government, is about 70 percent of the department quit. And as a result, very little stuff happened. Now, if and that not, was by design, that was uh, that was by design. Yeah, um, and if you're not, not by the Department of Interior, you're not gonna you're not gonna notice that. But people who, particularly in the West, saw that sort of thing. He has, in the Trump the Trump campaign has made very clear that they want to radically reorganize all of civil service. So what you could think of this is is what would happen if you saw basically, which is what they want, like a seventy percent turnover in all employees in federal jobs. What would that what would that entail? And the the first thing um, that you would really see is you'd see travel just grind to an absolute halt. Air travel particularly be almost what we've seen as like holiday air travel is what you'd see every day. And so right now people get to the airport hour, hour and a half early in large part because they are anticipating the TSA line. Um, if if Trump's plans for the FAA were to come into effect. How much more time would you now need to leave to go to the airport? You would you would presumably let's say you have half the number of TSA employees for a couple mm -hmm. of years that they as they lose people and restart. You'd have to be probably twice as long, two and a half hours. The other thing to keep in mind is air traffic controllers, yeah. the people who guide the planes are federal employees, and they're already having trouble hiring enough people. Yeah, to did keep you see that story on. this weekend about them? I did see that story this yeah. weekend, and it was right on point to this. If suddenly you see a lot of them laying off, then you don't even have the ability to have as many flights and you have half as many flights. Or, or plane accidents. Or or plane accidents. I'm going to assume that they will just say we, we can't carry through as many flights. Right. But, but the and point of the article was they are so overworked as it is that there's a lot of near misses happening these days. Right. Exactly. That's before so, they're cut dramatically. So, all right. So right now, if you just take Trump at his word from a air travel standpoint, you now need to be at the airport for a domestic flight two and a half hours early. It's international, probably more like four hours. Um, your odds of dying in a plane crash are going up and the number of flights available to you will decrease significantly because there are not air, enough air traffic controllers to actually guide the planes. Right. All right, what's the next one? Next one, so what we've seen um, in terms of inflation has come a lot because of COVID's impact on the food supply and on food chain logistics, that will only get worse. So one thing that the federal government does is it inspects food that is being uh, sold for human consumption in the U.S. with USDA food inspectors. If we don't have the same number of government civil servant USDA food inspectors, it will be slower and harder to get all the inspections done that we need to get done. This means that food will A, both be potentially less safe, but more likely it's just going to take longer for the food to get out the door and you may have supply chain problems where food's wasted, prices go up. All the things that we worry about or that were caused by rampant inflation are just going to be exacerbated because you aren't going to have the types of food inspections that are required by law. Right. So it, it seems to me that one of the very um, basic precepts and benefits of living in this country and, and generally in, in Western society is you can walk into a restaurant, walk into a store, buy the food. It may taste terrible, but you're not going to get sick from it. It's very unlikely something really had to go wrong because we have a serious both FDA process to inspect and regulate food, and then localities have their own restaurant inspection systems um, to make sure that standards are being met. So are you saying that 
if we were to walk into Albertsons or Publix or whatever it is under this new situation, I buy a pack of hot dogs, I'm putting my life in my hands. No, I, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it's actually going to be a lot harder to get that pack of hot dogs. Okay. So this is a difference between like OSHA and the inspections that you do around uh, industrial facilities, manufacturing plants, where they only really inspect after there's been an accident that has occurred or they'll do a spot inspection. Those will occur less. And you are, when you go to work, you will certainly be less safe if you work in a fa factory under Trump because there won't be as many safety inspections. With the food inspections, if the food is not inspected, they don't let it out in the first place, which means if you get a food inspector that is only be able to be around half the time, that means you have to wait twice as long to get the food out the door in the so first place. So we're looking at like Soviet-style food shortages. If not Soviet-style food shortages, COVID-style food shortages. Right, great. So now we're gonna die in plane crashes. We gotta get to the airport hours earlier. Only half as many flights, and we can't get any of the food that we need. So far, this is a great administration. What's next? Uh, well, repeal of the ACA, or whatever Trump wants to say about that. Okay. Um, so access to health care. What we have seen, what he has promised now, although he's the words on what is going to happen and whether there's a replacement change, you know, literally by the day or by the time he's interviewed, it's very clear that he wants to restrict the access to health care that was expanded under Obamacare. Um, what does that mean? It means, first of all, obviously, if you got health care under Obamacare or if you're a small business owner or somebody who doesn't have adequate insurance under the, your current plan, you're going to have to struggle to find new access, particularly because biz because insurance companies have adapted. Um, that means it's going to make it harder for you to enroll. There's also going to be reduced subsidies, which are going to increase cost to insurers. And that'll um, that will obviously as you know, as a business owner, will trickle down to the small business owners. And right. the price of insuring your employees is just going to go up. Right. And then, but given the laws of the ACA, if you were over, what is it, 50 employees, do you have a choice? Or, uh, meaning, will people just start cutting uh, actual care for their employees? Will they just make them take the worst, cheapest possible plan? Um, or will they have to just take big losses that have to get passed on to the customers elsewhere? So a lot of this depends on Congress, right? Because Trump cannot repeal the ACA by himself. Trump is, you know, and if the ACA is not repealed, Trump is going to have to move to other strategies. What they did in Trump one was that they made the website extremely hard to access. They made it really hard for insurers to use the website. And we just saw that all the people who were theoretically supposed to get access under the ACA were frustrated from it in every way. If the ACA is actually eliminated, then you start seeing the larger employees um, refuse to insure in the first place. And that's, I think that's a, a broader one, but that would depend on a unified Republican Congress as well. Got it. Um, which, you know, probably won't happen to the point where you get this bill through. But, you know, Democrats had enough unified to get the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure bill through under Trump. They had enough to get the tax bill through. So, you know, not impossible. Right. Right, could happen. Next? next one, higher education. So Trump has two things that he's very worked up about in higher education, and he is worked up. The first is what he looks at as the politicization of uh, higher educational institutions. But you you um, can't really argue about that, right? You cannot. You can't argue with him about the fact that a lot of the faculty is politicized yeah if you do of course i mean that's their first amendment right trump has obviously been fighting very hard for his first amendment rights so there's a healthy dose 
of Schadenfreude and the idea that he's he's going to try to you know take away the First Amendment rights of all the all the professors, it's less clear that the universities themselves are institutionally you know leftist at this point. He, even based but, on the responses, I know I'm more off topic a little bit, but like given the heavy criticism of so many different universities around um, them sort of equating Israel's actions with Hamas's terrorism. You still think that the institutions in are the neutral? Grand it's just the things, it was a hand. That was a handful of universities, but yeah, I mean, there are there are some right, and there are some universities that are, you know, are historically very right wing. Most of the universities are trying to are trying to find a common ground in the middle. Yep. But let's talk about what Trump would do. Um, one thing that he could do is make it extremely hard to get student loans at what he deems to be left-wing universities. So he, 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 he can do that unilaterally through executive order? He can. It's not exactly through executive order, but through working with, you know, Fannie Mae and the, uh, you know, Freddie Mac and some of the student loan providers. Mm-hmm. He could make it more difficult to get student loans at some institutions than others. Yes, that is, that's within the universe. The other thing that he's proposed, and this one is, I think in the realm of bombast more than reality, but he's also proposed sweeping all of the endowments from large private universities into one federal endowment for all of higher education. That would obviously have drastic. <laughs> to, to your point about the irony, like this is a guy who you know supposedly lives in private enterprise, certainly fights having to pay any penny of his dollar in taxes ever, and now he just wants to sweep private resources into a federal. Uh, into federal a federal account? thing called the American Academy that can make sure that there's not wokeness at these universities. I mean, the the impact, obviously, you know this, the impact of all the major endowments ending up in one place under one person's control on the on the private capital system is just incredible. But I that one is while it's on there, it's it's available for everyone to see. It's it's really hard to see how he would yeah. get that done. Yeah. And the last one. Uh, last one. And we talked about this a little bit. The impacts on work. If you are if you work in a factory and you depend on OSHA, if you do, if you are in a job where you have protections under the Department of Labor, you should assume those you should assume those protections are um, radically restructured. Um, first of all, because there's going to be no one to enforce them. Second of all, he's going to change labor policy. I think rel- relatively dramatically. Obviously, there are state departments of labor as well. So you know all of your protections. If you live in California, your wage and hour protections are largely state anyway. But for people who are looking for increases to the minimum wage, I think you could see a rollback in those states where the states don't already have a higher minimum wage than the federal government. And so is this mainly a blue collar concern or is it an office job thing, too? Who should be worried about this? It's, a you know, like all of these things, the people who should be most worried are the people at the, you know, at the greatest risk, because for healthcare, it's the people with the lowest wage jobs who have the least access for OSHA, it's people who work in factories and, and places where conditions are generally speaking unsafe. It's almost always people along those you know lines of people who depend on the government for their livelihood and protection. Who, who, ironically, some, even though normally it stacks up, the, the view would be, you know, the poorer, more vulnerable you are, the more likely you are Democrats that Trump doesn't care anyway. You know, blue collar is supposed to be his base, right? Right. So, so, all right, let me just make sure I get this correctly. So if you were to just take, and, and these aren't policies that you created, you just took what they have publicly said and what has been released or leaked publicly and taken them at their word, here's what we're looking at. Um, you now need to get to the airport two and a half hours early, typically for domestic flights, probably about four hours for international flights. 
the number of flights available will probably be cut in half um, simply because there will be so many fewer air traffic controllers that they can't safely do the job. Third, um, the odds of there being an accident in the air are significantly higher, and if you are in a plane crash, uh, you don't survive it. Um, second, food availability. We're going to have major shortages of food in supermarkets like we had during COVID, um, simply because food can't be sold if it's not first inspected. And if you radically cut the number uh, of FDA inspectors, um, the food can't get into the supermarkets in the first place. And so people are not going to be able to get the food that they need. And some people end up going hungry altogether. Um, third, on health care, um, changes to the ACA that Trump would try to make um, would mean that um, expenses uh, to cover employees would go way up. And as a result, because federal subsidies would go down, and that would mean that employers would either have to try to cut access completely or put people in much worse plans or potentially have to pass on the cost to customers or just close their businesses entirely. Um, so either way, you're going to see people with much worse health care, and these are people who work for somebody else typically. Um, fourth, in higher education, you're going to, if you are applying to college and you're hoping to get a loan to pay for college, your ability to get that loan and the availability of the loans can be significantly less than it is today. And finally, um, if you work in a factory, uh, you are likely to have uh, far fewer safety measures in place, far fewer people looking out for your safety, far fewer regulations to enforce your safety, um, and therefore um, you will be a lot less safe. So I know you threw out a few other things to think about as well. You want to quickly go through those? Yeah, I mean, a couple things to to keep in mind. These are just what we know about. One of the things that we saw with, you know, the, you know, migrant uh, or the Muslim travel ban of the first uh, administration was there's always a million things that we don't anticipate and that are going to have unanticipated consequences. But if you think about the fact that he's going to have this massive immigration crackdown, which he's made very clear about, um, there's going to be a chilling impact on, you know, potentially um, currently illegal immigrants who are here or have been here, but wanting to continue to go to work, potentially moving to safer places. Um, it's going to impact the workforce as well. Um, there's also the idea that the, that he's going to strip the independence of the Justice Department. Um, that's, you know, debate whether and to the extent to which the Justice Department is truly independent in the way that it has nominally been. The idea that the Justice Department is going to lose its independence means you're going to lose a lot of government lawyers, which is going to um, cause great disruption in all of the ordinary crime prosecutions that they do over every day. Um, the third is obviously ending birthright citizenship, which he has talked about, um, is something that is a consequence of radical shift that I, honestly, I'm not even sure I could begin to understand what overall longer term impacts that would have, but it would be very transformative to the way in which um, people view the United States and to a lot of practices, particularly around travel practices that are economically impactful. So those are just those are three other ones not to lose sight of that um, that could have significant impacts kind of on ordinary people's everyday lives that I can't even begin to understand how those would play out economically. All right. Well, Bob, thank you for, for doing this. And I think um, whenever you kind of have five more, you know, just come back on and we'll, uh, we'll we'll go through this exercise again. That sounds great. I'll wait for five more policy pronouncements from the campaign. You probably have a Thanks couple of weeks much. by Thursday. All right. See you, Bob.
Okay, a uh, quick recommendation. So it's been a fairly substantive uh, episode, at least the, the Corey and Bob parts. Um, I'm going to recommend something totally non-substantive, which is a TV show on Netflix that just came out called Obliterated. Um, Obliterated is about a special ops CIA team that has to rescue Las Vegas from the detonation of a nuclear device. They uh, succeed in episode one and uh, then proceed to go out and have a crazy, crazy night on the town um, because they were pretty happy that they just saved Las Vegas, if not the world. Um, but then it turns out that the bomb was a fake and the real nuke was still out there. Oh my God. So now they had to go out and find and, that and, and not detonate and, uh, you know, fix the nuke or Diffuse. whatever. Diffuse the nuke, thank you. Um, while totally fucked up on like Molly, psilocybin, LSD, weed, booze, like every drug you could imagine. Um, and it's really fucking funny and it's got Russians and it's got you know, cyber criminals and it's got, you know, evil white supremacist plot in the U.S. and it's got, you know, hot CIA agents and all kinds of cool stuff. So um, very, very dumb, but very, very fun show. And then, Corey, you want to recommend something, too? So last night I saw the Beyonce movie Renaissance, the behind the scenes look at her tour over the summer and the concert. I like Beyonce, but I'm not a huge fan. I did not go to her concert. I did not go to the Taylor Swift concert. Mm -hmm. But I strongly recommend this movie if you like documentaries, if you like cinematography, if you're a casual fan. The behind the scenes is so interesting. You see like how they put it together. They have three stages that are traveling across the country. All the staff and the carpenters that have to assemble everything by hand every day. You see behind the scenes traveling, the editing. They're like constantly switching to different concerts. So her outfits like magically change in the same shot. It was so well done and so much fun. And it was a great way to spend money that doesn't involve spending a lot of money to go to the concert. I feel like I still got a great experience. So casual music, Beyonce documentary fans, go see this movie. Hugo, you want to do one too? I uh, know. No, those sound great. <laughs> I got to catch recommend. up on both those. All right. No. Obl obliterated in the Beyonce movie. All right. Thanks, guys. Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.